0: Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. With us on the podcast today is Brad Stotts. He wrote the book, Never Stop Learning, Stay Relevant, Reinvent Yourself and Thrive. If you're watching the video, this is what the book looks like. It's an excellent book. Brad is a professor of operations at University of North Carolina's Kenan Flagler Business School. And I'm delighted, Brad, to have you on the show. Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Peter. Excited to get to talk with you today. So, Brad, you know, it kind of seems obvious, but maybe spend a minute telling us why it's important more now than ever to never stop learning.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think uh You know, there's a, we have to recognize we're at a unique point in history, uh, that there are a number of forces uh, that are really increasing the rate at which knowledge is changing around us. And so, if we're going to succeed in this new environment, then it means we have to learn continuously. Um, How do we do our existing tasks better? How do we do entirely new things? Uh, You know, we can think about, you know, artificial intelligence and the rise of data as a big part of the story, right? We have an ability just to process massive amounts of information. And we see the change that goes with that. Um, in addition, and kind of contributing to that is just the general trend of specialization, faster and faster and faster. And so as we get deeper, the struggle is, you know not only do we have to get down there into the depths and so learn, but then we have to be able to pull back and connect it all together. Uh, finally, I'd highlight just the global world that we live in, right? This uh, kind of rate of change has continued for a number of years now, and so you're not just competing with your neighbor, you're competing with the person on the opposite side of the world. All that means, Right. Is we're really in a learning economy, not a knowledge economy.
0: And are you finding that that's uh, as true about the way we relate human being to human being and communication and these things that people would call soft skills as much as, you know, AI and new technologies that are coming out and new ways of operating a business?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, so I think what's interesting is, you know, these things are converging more and more, right? So it's not just a matter of, hey, you know, I need to learn some skills about machine learning. Uh, But importantly, then I have to bring it together. I spend a lot of time working with organizations, not, you know, only getting into the code of machine learning, but how do you get the data science team to work with the business domain expert? And so those sorts of soft skill challenges, you know, are constantly a struggle that we learn a new technology, but the hard is the easy. Typically, right? It's the, you know, how do we actually, you know, change our fundamental processes to take advantage of this?
0: So you say that we're bad at learning. Why? I mean, I would think that given how much we have to learn in school and like our very existence is dependent on our ability to learn, yep. why are we so bad at it? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think that, you know, what my own research has shown
1: uh, is, as you're highlighting it, that that oftentimes the biggest challenge we have for learning is ourselves, right? Uh, that uh, the problem is us. Um, and I think it's that, you know, many of our tendencies uh, are really designed for speed, are designed for efficiency. And learning uh, is often a, an inherently wasteful process. We have to be willing to try something new that may not work, right? That blows up in our face, that makes us look foolish. And, you know, our survival instincts teach us not to do that, right? I mean, unfortunately, in all too many classrooms, you learn if you're not 100% sure of the answer, you don't raise your hand, right? You actually sit there quietly. uh, And that transfers out into the business world, we get, you know, afraid to take risks, uh, or, uh, you know, we're focused very much on the outcome rather than the process that gets us there. And those choices kind of compromise our ability to learn, unfortunately.
0: It's so interesting, Brad, because, you know, like I, I, I totally hear you and I see it. And the challenge in part is that we're rewarded for our outcomes and not for the process. We're paid based on outcomes and not process. People, you know, appreciate us based on outcome and not process. So I'm just curious to get your perspective on that or how we shift that or how we can operate where we focus. Cause you talk a lot in the book about focusing on process and you learn from process and, and I agree with it inherently and i love learning and yet i can see how outcome driven i can be because i know that you know i can learn a ton but if i don't get an article actually written and you know on hbr's website or in a book or- then you know then it's all well and good but i haven't achieved anything
1: no it's a great point i mean i think there are a couple of observations i'd make i mean one is you know many of our management practices you know, really still stem from um, you know the industrial revolution um, scientific management right and so we have things in place where you know we knew what the right answer was we were trying to shovel coal and move it from one side of the yard to the other and so we could define that really well and so you know experimentation looks fundamentally different there you you can see did you get the coal and move it uh, and we take that same mindset you know to today where in writing an article you know I'm sure if you submitted your first article every time you know bad things would happen right we know there's a creative process you have to try it it works your editor responds um, you know I think what we see organizationally is folks changing how they look at it um, they know that yes we have to get you know eventually good products good services but as we work as we give feedback it has to be all throughout the process and so I would highlight you know, organizations like a Deloitte, organizations like Adobe, um, who fundamentally changed how they evaluate folks, that it's no longer that once a year, end of year, kind of heavyweight, tons of hours going into it, but instead a every week, every other week, having quick conversations, talking about what's going on. Because I think, you know, perversely, if we follow a good process, the outcomes follow. Um, So it's not that, you know, hey, outcomes are completely irrelevant, but we have to, you know, get um, into those steps that move us in the right direction.
0: What have you found helps stoke people's curiosity over their knowing? Oh, that's a great question.
1: Um, I mean, I, I think you know a lot of it has to do with tapping into what people you know, innately care about. So these days you you hear a lot of discussions around strengths, right? Um, and I think this is a is a great point that part of why they are so valuable um, is that they're motivational by themselves, right? And so, you know, if, you can think about, you know, if you're a manager, you're a leader, you're working with your team, trying to understand what do, what do people innately care about, um, because that certainly you know, can draw them out in a powerful direction. Um, but that's not the only way to do it. I think that we see good leaders are able to take advantage of purpose. right? They're able to explain, hey, what we're trying to, ex- what we're trying to accomplish here and getting into that why um, often will, spoke, will sort of spark that same curiosity as well.
0: You know, it's interesting because I imagine, you know, you mentioned leaders, and I imagine one of the most important things that leaders can do if they want to encourage the curiosity over knowing is to really create a safe environment where failure is fine and where people can ask questions and not know and where progress, you know, for some period of time might be slowed as you're moving through the discovery process. I'm curious if you've had experience... In seeing or helping leaders create those kinds of environments,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean I think you hit on a number of the key points um, so a- again, I mean, fundamental to all of this there's a little bit of a performance paradox uh, that you know, if we wanna succeed in the long run, it often means go slow to go fast, right? Uh, and so be willing to learn. Uh, I think you know, the, the behaviors that I see leaders do are, are some of the ones you mentioned. You know, Being willing to accept failure. I love the story of, of PAL's Sudden Service. Uh, they're a small fast food chain, in eastern Tennessee, uh, into Virginia, uh, they've won the Malcolm Baldrige Award, so they're incredibly efficient, incredibly accomplished, but their CEO loves to get out in front of people and say, hey, look, if it's not illegal, immoral, or unethical, you're allowed to make any mistake once. Just make sure the next mistake is something new. He models you know, that to the entire organization where they're a very high assurance organization. He expects them to accomplish amazing things, but he knows they're going to make mistakes. right? It's his job to prepare them. And when he makes a mistake, not only does he encourage you know, others to do it, he shares it. You know, he explains he made a really big one one time. Afterwards, he came out and I said, look, this cost us half a million dollars. I spent over $6 million on my education now, but we would not be where we are today if I hadn't done that. And so I think that sort of leadership behavior, as you you made the point of of creating that safe environment, you know, modeling what you want others to
0: do. You talk about uh, reflection and relaxation, right? And yet the problem, I think, is that most people, and we're sort of talking about this in one form or other, is they're starved for time, right? And so it's not even necessarily the drive for outcomes, but it's a drive for efficiency, which you mentioned earlier. And, and the starvation for time leads them to reflect and relax less. So how do we get people over the hump of, of the time issue? Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, I think
1: part of it is stepping back and thinking about, to your point, you know, efficiency, productivity, right? And there's, you know, it's, it's, it's a function of both the time you put in, but also kind of the quality of the work that you're accomplishing. Um, and so we tend to think the more work we have to do, well, I'm going to keep the quality constant. So I'll just jump up the number of hours and I get more done. Unfortunately, what we see is that reflection, that break to recharge. Yes, you lose a little bit of time but on the other side, you gain a whole lot of quality. Um, so let's take reflection as an example. You know, if you study learning, what's interesting, you see, yes, we learn by doing. Uh, we learn by trying stuff out. But we also learn by thinking. Um, and we, different parts of the brain get activated, whether we're doing, or whether we're thinking. And so it's the combination of the two that actually maximizes our learning, actually maximizes kind of our rate of performance. Uh, And so that small time of stepping back can have a tremendous benefit. We did uh, a really small experiment uh, with a uh, technology services firm. They had a six week training program. We took two weeks in the middle of the program and we randomly assigned participants to either reflect for 15 minutes at the end of the day or continue with their same kind of eight, nine hour training program. Um, That group that reflected, we just asked them, hey, write about two things you learned today. That's it, two things you learned. The end of the six weeks, they took an exam to basically qualify for the job. The group that reflected performed 25% higher. Their first month on the job, they performed 10% higher. We've done a bunch of laboratory experiments that replicate the same effect over and over again. And so I think part of it is changing our mindset, realizing this – you know, slow down to speed up later um, is incredibly important.
0: This is going to sound like the strangest question, uh, which may just feel obvious to you. But as, as you know, as a workaholic, I feel like I can ask the question. How do you relax? Right. I was very moved by the way. I was very moved by your rest and relaxation chapter and I struggle with it myself. I try to be too productive and I know it's really important to stop working and sleep more and yet, you know, the work doesn't really stop. And I, you know, and, and I'm actually, I'll sort of reveal something else, which I revealed to you earlier, which is like, I, I got, apparently there's absolutely no connection, but I got the shingles vaccine shot and then I got the shingles and the, everybody tells me it's a dead virus. So I didn't get the shingles from the shot, but apparently I've been run down. Right. And, and I think, you know, everyone's saying you have to relax. And I'm thinking, cause I, I love learning. I'm, I'm, you know, really focused on it but I think this relaxation thing is eluding me. Yeah, I mean, I,
1: I think that a lot of it comes down to the person, right? And taking, ironically, taking some time to reflect on relaxation. Um, you know, figuring out for you you know, what's going to, what's going to create that time and different people relax at different rhythms. For some people, you know, it's definitely a daily thing. It's part of their run that does it for them, or they're walking the dog in the morning. Other people find they need to kind of have a sprint and then take a, you know, take a small little vacation or take some time to step back. Um, If I look at my own life and I talk a little bit about this in the book, you know, when uh, I was in my doctoral program, we had young kids. Um, We'd go to Disney. It was great. The kids could run around and, and do whatever they wanted you know as an adult you didn't have the same pressure uh, and it actually was an escape now as uh, I have 14 12 and 10 year old kids um, that sounds miserable I don't want to go do that with them uh, you know so we uh, we like active outdoor you know activities and those create the break um, and I think part of it in my hunches this might be true for you too is giving yourself permission to relax um, that I, I'm in the same boat as you that there's always another thing that needs done and um, and so, you know, for myself, what's been the calming influence is said, look, I, I really will get more done if I take these three days, I disconnect, I leave the laptop at home, um, I do my best to leave the phone, uh, and, you know, come back fully refreshed. And I, And I think what people find is when they're able to do that, they actually start to see the benefits from it on the other side. And so that helps with kind of the analytical side of the brain convincing ourselves.
0: What did your son hitting... Into a double play, teach you about outcome bias.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think this goes back to our process discussion from earlier. So I'm fortunate enough to get to coach all of my kids. Uh, and this was my eldest. We were playing in a game against a very good team. Uh, to, pitcher was kind of either walking people or striking them out and he managed to hit a ball as hard as he could. Unfortunately, it took one bounce, shortstop grabbed it, turned a double play uh, and the inning was over. And He comes off and I'm trying to congratulate him and he wants nothing to do with that. You know, his, his comment was, dad, you know, even a weak ground ball would have scored a run. There was only one out and, and I cost the team. Um, and I think it highlighted this, this point you mentioned of outcome bias, that we think when a good outcome happens, it means we followed a good process. And when a bad outcome happens, we followed a bad process. And unfortunately, life's not that simple, right? It's not, hey, follow these four steps and always good stuff happens. Follow, you know, Don't follow them and always bad stuff. Sometimes, you know, it works out you know, the opposite direction. Um, I've got a friend, Cade Massey, uh, who likes to say, look, if the world understood variance, even a little bit, you know, we'd, it'd be a much better place. Um, and so from a learning standpoint, we have to be willing to step back and look at the process. Right? What are we actually doing to try to connect us from A to B?
0: You know, a lot of what you're saying in this conversation is bringing to mind uh, Warren Buffett and and other leaders that I know, who are very very good at doing two things. One is separating signal from noise, uh, and and the other is really sticking to a process. Right? And the way Warren Buffett does it is. Very simple, right? He's like, you're gonna and, and the way a lot of statisticians do, which is you evaluate a set of percentage chances of things, and then you invest based on the percentage chances. And you know, generally, you know, if it's eighty percent, if you're making a number of of, of bets on an eighty percent probability, you'll be right eighty percent of the time. And you know, like you just do the math. Which is sort of what you're saying, right? Which is focus on the process and make sure that the process leads eventually to the outcome. And if it's an 80% probability, you'll be wrong 20% of the time. And that's called failure. Yeah. But overall, the process is useful. And then the signal to noise, which is, you know, I, I remember reading an article once about Buffett. And it said, and, and he was quoted as saying, you know, and, you know, this is the, the – he's made billions and billions of dollars. <laughs> and he said, you know, I – Probably make about six decisions a year, right? <laughs> and and I think you know he's thinking and he's reflecting and he's looking and he's got, and then he makes you know a big move here and there, and and I wonder if you've looked at any of this kind of signal for noise uh, uh, methodology, or I don't even know how to call it methodology, but the people who are good at it and what it takes to, you know, to kind of really see through all of the noise to know. I'm gonna not not run uh, run away with wasting a ton of time over here in this area, but I'm gonna really focus on these two areas, and I'm gonna make these three decisions that are gonna make the biggest difference.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there there are a couple things you're you're highlighting in there. I mean, one of it is getting comfortable with you know, with variance, with probabilities, and knowing that, you know, even if you, know, if you have a 60-40 decision, you know, that, is prob- that, that in general is going to be a great decision, right? You're going you're gonna to win far more often than you're going to lose. Unfortunately, many organizations, you know, you're only allowed to make the, the 100% decision. And so think about kind of all the waste there. Uh, or you when, make
0: that 60-40 decision, and you're allowed to make it once. And if it's yes. the 40% chance, then you're no longer allowed to make decisions.
1: Time to move on. Right. And and back to kind of the organizational point, people learn. um, And so then they're not going to take those sorts of risks again.
0: You know, you're saying that's the right risk to take. Forty percent of the time you're going to be wrong. That's actually batting pretty well. And and you you want to actually keep taking that risk. You
1: would. And, and I think, I mean, somebody like Buffett and, and investments, you know, would would feel good about that. Um, you know, having talked to lots of folks kind of in the hedge fund space and the finance space, you know, they're they're dealing with very small percentages, the 6040. You know, they they take that and just keep doing it over and over again. Right. Um, I, I think part of it is, you know, being methodical about the process. You know, one of the great um, tips, you know, that in terms of dealing with that is writing down your expectations beforehand writing down why you think it's going to occur, um, that uh, then, you know, afterwards, the problem is we tend to make sense of of reality based on what we expected to see, right? And so, you know, kind of this problem of we see what we want to believe. Uh, And so if we're able to write down before, then once something happens, we can try to look back and, you know, did it fit, did it not fit? Why didn't it work? What can I learn from that? And how can I move on? And I think that's what the kind of Buffets of the world really get um, that they, you know, fundamentally they're creating a model of how the world works. Sometimes it's got numbers behind it. Sometimes it's just up here as a middle model, um, but they're, they're being really thoughtful and methodical about that.
0: What's failing fast and why are
1: we so bad at it? Yeah, I mean, I think it gets back to some of the themes that we've had in this discussion. So before I went back to academia, I'd spent time in, v- in venture capital. And, you know, around the startup world, this idea of try something new, see if it works, you know, fail or succeed, but either way, speed, right? Fast, fast, fast. And so, you know, this idea of kind of ready, fire, aim, uh, that you try it and, and you move on. And and I think while that's a mantra in lots of organizations, I rarely see an organization that, when I actually talk to people and and they're honest with me, doesn't say, "Yeah, we really struggle with this. We the we have the bumper sticker, uh, but we're not able to do it." And and I think it gets back to your point, you know, from earlier about that 60/40 example. That you know what happens is somebody you know, has the 60/40 decision. They get on the 40 side, and suddenly that promising career gets derailed. Right? Uh, that uh, you know instead of seeing, "Hey, we had to try it. It didn't work. Now we move on." Um, you know, it's, "Hey, now you're off the fast track." Track. now, you know, kind of go back to some, some grudge work or, or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, we kind of learn, we have learned helplessness setting in. Um, and so, you know, thinking about, especially in, for leaders of what can we do to encourage people? Um, part of it is being willing to share your own failures. When I teach groups of mid-level leaders, I love to have the senior folks come in and ask them, hey, talk about when you failed. And for many people, this is the first time they're hearing it in the organization. They just assume if you got to that level, here's the narrative of everything that worked but instead they're making it okay to fail another thing you can do as a leader you know is actually track failure rate and encourage people that you know if our success rate is too high it means we're not trying enough things, it means we're not innovating enough. And look, I mean, if you're running a nuclear reactor, by all means, you know, don't don't have a high failure rate. Right. But if you know we're in a standard role that needs innovation and everything we try is successful, that doesn't mean you're really good. That means you're not pushing the boundaries nearly far enough.
0: You, you talk about um, if you make that 40 percent decision and it fails and then everybody looks at you or you're not given the choice to uh, or the right to make another decision. I also think that's self-imposed, meaning we make a decision, it fails, and we begin to question our own competence. And there's this great term in football that I remember reading about called pace, which is performance after critical error. And they found that the most successful quarterbacks um, had a high performance after critical error, meaning they made a mistake and the next play wasn't infected by that mistake. I'm curious what you have learned about... Um, about increasing our pace, right? Increasing our ability to perform after we've made mistakes.
1: No, it's a, it's a really important point. I mean, I think there are there are a couple of pieces there. I mean, one is the confidence to press on, uh, and so in that quarterback example, um, that uh, you know they they don't. Uh, kind of get overwhelmed by the fear of failure, um, and so part of addressing that is 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 normalizing or destigmatizing failure, helping people see that you know this is going to happen, this is part of the role, um, and we just have to press on. And so with a quarterback, that you know they're going to be interceptions. No one is going to go an entire season without an interception. I think the second piece though is making sure we learn from the failure. That unfortunately, you know many times because we're so embarrassed by it, we sort of try to cover our eyes, you know like the two-year-old and, you know, nothing to see here, you know, move along. Um, and, you know, those really good quarterbacks, you see them on the sidelines, they're looking at what happened. They see the middle linebacker jumped out, right. And, you know, kind of stole the pass. Uh, and, you know, in the same way as a leader, you know, we need to be willing to look at what happened. Uh, we've done some work looking at attribution after an event occurs. Do you blame yourself for the situation? And unfortunately, many times when we fail, we engage in what's called the fundamental attribution error, uh, that's when it's us, we blame the situation and don't really take responsibility, right? Oh, it wasn't me. No one could have been successful here, right? I was just incredibly unlucky. And, and unfortunately, you know, that we, we pass up the opportunity to learn them. So we did a study looking at uh, cardiac surgeons and in their case, failure was losing a patient. Um, And unfortunately, sometimes you operate on a very sick patient. You're not going to, you're not going to save them all. Um, And what we saw is they actually did not learn from their own failures. They did not improve from their own failures, um, likely because of this attribution problem. Interestingly, they would learn from others because for other people, you're likely to blame the person, not the situation.
0: Uh, Interesting. Um,
1: And and so, you know, what I think is incredibly important, whether you're a quarterback, whether you're a leader, you know, that when something goes wrong, you know, you ask yourself, hey, how was I responsible? Not in a way of now I'm paralyzed to try again. But, you know, what can I learn? How can I use this to increase my likelihood of success next time?
0: It's really, really interesting. That point that we learn from other people's errors much more effectively than we learn from our own errors. Yeah. And
1: and I think it it is just part of a general theme of incorporating other people in our learning journey that, you know, I've, I've gotten better at this with time. I didn't start in a good place here of when you make a mistake, you want to kind of hide, right? You don't want to tell anybody or share it. And now when I make mistakes, trying to go out, Hey, what went wrong here? Why did this go wrong? How can I do better? You know, in teaching is a great example. Every so often a class just won't go right. And so in the past, you would almost want to kind of bury my head, uh, and not, you know, talk to anybody, but instead, you know, whether it's going to other faculty, here's a plan that didn't work, whether it's actually talking to the students, hey, you know, clearly something was off today. Let's understand what it was. And that openness creates an environment where then everyone can learn, not only you.
0: Do you have an example of having done that recently?
1: Um, I mean, I can think of an, of an older one um, that was a, uh, an example around teaching uh, a Teams class and it was interesting. It, it, I thought I had great content. I'd, I'd prepped this all, and and delivered it, and just you know fell totally flat. Uh, and, you know, my first reaction as I'm driving home is, okay, I'm going to pretend that never happened. You know, it wasn't me, they they didn't want to be there. Uh, and the more I thought about it, it was, okay, I might need to practice what I preach here. Uh, and so I actually turned to a, to another faculty and, and brought in my materials. And, and it was fascinating that then when somebody else could step in, you know, he pointed out kind of my key problem was in my excitement to teach them. I had taught them, you know, they were drinking from a fire hose, there was concept after concept after concept. And so You know, they I'd given them a lot of great stuff, but they had no hope of actually learning it. Uh, And so it was a great lesson to me of pairing back, right, a theme of our conversation today. Sometimes less is more, uh, and it was certainly true with respect to that uh, learning opportunity.
0: This is great. Brad, I've so enjoyed this conversation. There's a lot of personal lessons for me about (laughs) slowing down also. The book is Never Stop Learning, Stay Relevant, Reinvent Yourself, and Thrive. It's as delightful as this conversation was. Brad, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Absolutely. Thanks, Peter. I hope you feel better. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.